Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis how wealth and riches got a hold of Lot's heart and how he fell into a trap of temptations over treasures. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org or on iTunes. Thank you for listening to this program. If you'd like to continue the Friendship with God radio program on this station in your city, please donate at friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org or call us at one 800 247 3051 1-800-247-3051. Here's Tom Cantor. See, Abraham was willing to give up the land for the honor of God. It's total contrast with Abraham. He was willing to give up the plain of Jordan for the honor of God, for keeping peace. Lot got a wife. He got a wife. He got a wife in Sodom. He ended up losing his wife. When she turned back to Sodom and became a pillar of salt, he lost his wife. Lot lost his wife. Who knows how much Lot's wife might have been, could have been, influenced, helped, had Lot just been a different man. A man like Abraham, a man of character, a man of principle, a man who was willing to be self-sacrificing, a humble man. Lot lost his children. He lost his children to sin. Lot married, had children. Lot's married children refused to leave Sodom. They were destroyed. Lot's unmarried daughters committed a horrible act of incest that brought in the Ammonites and the Moabites. Who knows how much Lot's children could have been, might have been helped, had Lot been a different man. And finally, the thing that he was after all along is wealth. He lost his wealth. When Lot fled out of the land, out of the city there of Sodom, he had nothing. He had nothing, just the clothes that were on his back. And he lived as a homeless person in a cave. He thought he was making the right choice to gain the world. He lost it all. He lost everything. He lost his wife. He lost his children. He lost his wealth. All because he made the wrong decisions. He made his choices based on the disease that he had of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So Lot stands for us as a giant warning sign. Because Lot was a believer... And he could perceive that angels were coming to visit him at his house in Sodom. He protected those angels from the aggressive homosexuality in Sodom. And Lot's soul is called righteous. In 2 Peter 2, 7 through 8, it says, God says, He delivered just Lot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked, for that righteous man dwelling among them and seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. See, he had the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, but he was a tormented man because he made wrong choices. He made wrong choices, and he lost everything but God. And there's one word to characterize Lot, loss. So sad. It's so sad here because it didn't have to be. Lot's end was so sad. Now, verse 11 tells us of something very tragic for Lot, where it says in the end of verse 11, Lot journeyed east, and they separated themselves, the one from the other. So, that's important. Lot separates, see? Lot desperately needed the godly influence of Abraham. He was desperate for that. He had this disease of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he needed to stay with Abraham so he could recover. And Lot could see In his recovery process, he could see in Abraham what a man of God looks like. I mean, Lot needed to see Abraham, and he needed to see how Abraham, as the man of God, lets God change his heart. 
See, both of them had this disease. Both Abraham and Lot had a disease described in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So they both had this disease of having a deceitful heart and a desperately wicked heart. But the difference is the man of God let God change his heart. When it says in Jeremiah 31, 33, this is the heart changing. But this shall be the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts. Be their God, they'll be my people. 1 Kings 8, 58, they prayed that he may incline our hearts unto him to walk in all his ways. Ezekiel eleven nineteen, where God says, I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I'll take the stony heart out of their flesh and will give them a heart of flesh. See, they both had the same problem, but the difference between Lot and Abraham was that Abraham surrendered to God and let God change his heart. And Lot didn't do that. Abraham knew his heart was sick. He came to God as a physician and asked God, wanted God, needed God, had to have God change his heart. And Lot didn't. See, that's the difference where it's spoken about in Mark 2.17. When Jesus heard it, he saith unto them, They that are whole have no need of physician, but they that are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Lot needed to stay with Abraham so he could see in Abraham how a man of God with a changed heart begins to go through the process of delighting himself in God and how he could see then of how God then gives him the desires of his new heart. As it says in Psalm 37, 4, Delight thyself also in the Lord, and he shall give thee desires of thine heart. Both Abraham and Lot, they were looking for happiness. They wanted security, as we all do, and peace. But the difference was that Lot followed his old, deceitful, wicked heart and to find those things which led him in all the wrong places. But Abraham came to God to heal him of his diseased heart, give him a new heart, what it says in Ezekiel 36, 26, when God says, a new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I'll take away the stony heart out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. So with Abraham, he's got this new God-given heart. God begins to work in Abraham to change his desires and his actions, as it says in Philippians 2.13. For it's God that works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God works in you to will. That's very important. It's like the person who says, I can quit smoking whenever I want to. The problem is, I don't want to. (laughs) But when God works in us, he changes our wants to. That's the difference. Lot desperately needed to stay with Abraham. So Lot could have his want-tos changed by God, like Abraham did. Lot said, no, not for him. That's the last words of verse 11. Tragic. And they separated themselves, the one from the other. Now we read in verse 12 how each of them settled in. Abraham dwelled in the land, verse 12, of Canaan. Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and pitched his tent towards Sodom. Now, we see Abraham, he stays there in the land of Canaan. He's not in any city. But Lot, he's just drawn to these cities of the plain. See, verse 12 says, tells us that really, when you really get the impression, Lot is he's moving. He's moving. It says he's dwelled in the cities. Not a city, but cities of the plain. So we see a restlessness in this man Lot. 
I mean, Lot seems to be moving from one city to the other, and he doesn't really settle down. In verse 12, there is the word, the Hebrew word ad, translated toward in the King James. It's better translated as far as. Most of the others use that. The majority of time, that little word ad in Hebrew is translated until or till. As, so the verse really better reads with this word. It's very important in this verse. Uh, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent, odd, as far as Sodom. It brings out, so you'll see that, as far as it brings out how Lot is really, he's searching, he's searching, he's looking for excitement, he wants adventure. Not that boring life of Abraham, that's boring, Abraham and his God, but not Lot, oh no, all Lot, he's going to push his way towards the extreme. The more outrageous, the more exciting. He's craving this thrilling pleasure, this delightful ecstasy he's looking for. It's exciting for Lot, he flirts with what Abraham told him was forbidden. And he's finally gotten away from all those disturbing frowns of Abraham. And now Lot's life is no longer restrained. And he's free to explore all the pleasures of the dark passions. And he wants to have fun, and he wants to experience the other side of life. And he's looking for this exhilarating flirtation with sin. So he keeps moving from city to city. And he keeps going farther and farther into the dark world. What was thrilling for Lot yesterday is now boring. No more kicks out of that. It's time for the more and more risque to give Lot the kicks he's looking for. So he moves from city to city and he goes deeper and deeper into sin. And he doesn't know it, but he's becoming more and more trapped as he moves from city to city until finally, as far as, finally, Lot gets as far as Sodom the city of unbridled homosexuality, and that's the end of the road. That's why it is as far as for Lot. So the last words of verse 11 show the direction of Lot. He's separated from Abraham, he's separated from God, but he doesn't stay stagnant. It shows where the road ended for Lot in Sodom, the end of the road. And that was the end of the road because of verse 13. The men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. See, they were before God in doing all these things. That's what they didn't see. And God had enough. Lot was on his life journey of seeking pleasures. But the life-seeking pleasures had an odd to it. It had an as far as you can go. It had an end of the road. And in contrast to the life of the believer, who has no odd, has no as far as with it in, the road for the pleasure seeker just keeps getting darker and darker until there's that final stumble. He doesn't even know what he stumbled at. He falls into hell. But that's not true of the believer, as it says in Proverbs 4, 18 through 19. The path of the just is as the shining light that shineth more and more unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is as darkness. They know not at what they stumble. Lot was not a man who ended up in hell, but going down that wrong road, he lost everything, including his purity, his happiness, his security, his peace, and his service for God. He wasted his life. Now, this picture of Lot was pretty depressing, and it's pretty depressing for us to watch. It's pretty depressing for Abraham to have watched. So God says, we're going to switch the focus now back to the hero of our history, Abraham. So that's what happens in verse 14. And the Lord said unto Abram, after Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes and look from the place where thou art, northward, southward, eastward, westward. It's been a pretty rough time on poor Abraham. He's separated from Lot. He's lost Lot. He's watched the tragic downfall of Lot. He's moved on to a land, a dust bowl that was left over after Lot took the great place, see. 
So there's a feeling in Abraham of a sadness, of an emptiness. I mean, he's kind of hanging his head like this. You know, it's a rough time. You gotta... So what does God do for his downhearted man? You know, what does God do for us when we are downhearted? It's no shame to be downhearted. Sometimes it comes, sometimes it surprises us, and we find ourselves downhearted. And three times David said in the Psalm 42.5, 43.5, where he says in 42.11, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? Why art thou disquieted within me? Hope thou in God, for I shall yet praise him, who is the health of my countenance and my God. So what does God do when we feel like... Like Abraham, we're sad, empty, cast down. We just lost a loved one, maybe from a parting or a separation, as in this case, maybe from death. God speaks to his downhearted man. And the Lord said unto Abram, notice the words, he said unto Abram, here's a special word for Abram. And where should we look when we're sad and cast downhearted? The Bible, where God speaks to us with a special word. The Lord said to Abram after Lot was separated from him. The Lord says to us after a loved one is separated from us. And what did God say to his downhearted man, Abram? He says, lift up thine eyes. He goes like this, you know, lift up your eyes, look. He says, look, and that's what God says to us. He says, lift up your eyes. Look from the place where thou art. He says, look, what does he say to us? He says, Romans 8, 18. He says, for I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed to us. What does he say to us when we're downhearted? 2 Corinthians four seventeen. Our light affliction is for a moment. It works in us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. What does he say? He says what he said in John 14, 1 and 2. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go, he says, if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. He says, Luke 12, 32. Fear not, little flock. It's your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He says, Isaiah 64, 4. For since the beginning of the world, men have not heard, nor have perceived by the ear, neither hath the eye seen, O God, beside thee, what he hath prepared for him that waiteth for him. So how does God encourage his downhearted Abraham? He says to him, verses 15 through 17, words like, This land, I'll give it to you and to your seed forever. I'll make your seed as the dust of the earth. Rise, walk, I'll give it to you. See those words, I'll give, I'll make, I'll give. They're promises, promises, promises. And that's how God encouraged Abraham with those promises, wonderful promises. What kind of promises? The kind of promises that Peter described in 2 Peter 1.4. Whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. Promises, they're not just ordinary promises. These promises are exceeding, they're great, they're precious promises. Promises so powerful that they make us partakers of the divine nature. Promises that are so powerful, they enable us to escape the corruption that's in the world through lust. Promises that, are, that make possible what's written in 1 John 3, 2 about us. Beloved, now are we the sons of God. It doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know when he shall appear we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Promises that are so powerful, they make us know now we're the sons of God. They make us know that when he appears we're going to be like him. So powerful that we're able to see what doth not yet appear. Or as it says in Hebrews eleven thirteen, these all died in faith. 
Not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off and were persuaded of them, embraced them, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Promises that are so powerful that throughout our lives we continue to embrace them. Promises are so powerful that throughout our lives we continue to be persuaded or changed by them. They're so powerful we continue to tell people we're strangers, we're pilgrims, we're going to heaven. Promises that are so powerful that even through our deaths, we continue to see them afar off. Promises that are so powerful that it caused Abraham, in the last verse of this chapter, Abraham removed his tent, came, dwelt in the plain of Mamre, when it says Hebron, built there an altar. Promises that are so powerful that we, like Abraham, we just let the world go by. While they spend their time seeking pleasures, we spend our time at the altar in our hearts, worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and giving ourselves more to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these promises that you make to us to encourage our hearts, Lord, when we so often find ourselves in great need as Abraham did. Thank you, Lord, that you are with Abraham, you're with us, and we praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Dad, you've talked in the past about a verse in Isaiah 33.6, which talks about the stability of your times. Now, everyone knows we're living on very unstable times today. How would you apply this well, verse David, that to verse, our times Isaiah today? Isaiah 33.6, is very important because it says, And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of thy times, and strength of salvation, for the fear of the Lord is his treasure. You know, the wisdom that's being spoken about here and the knowledge is Christ who is the beginning of wisdom and it's the knowledge of God. It's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we're saved. That's why it means in strength of salvation. Because when he described what eternal life is, the Lord Jesus Christ said in John 17, 3, and this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. We came into salvation by knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come into stability in the midst of very unstable times. When everything around us is changing, we come into a stability. The more we know the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Daniel said in Daniel 11.32, the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. That doesn't mean to know about their God, but that means to know their God. That comes from spending time with God. That comes from spending time in prayer with God. That comes in spending time in the Word of God. That's how we come to know God, to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And that knowledge brings us strength, the strength to endure during unstable times. This is the stability that we have during the times when everything around us is falling apart. That's why it's so important to guard very jealously the quiet time in the morning with God, to spend time with him, to have, to say, as you open the book, open the Bible, to say, now, Lord, speak for thy servant heareth. Just like Samuel prayed to God as he was directed to do by Eli. He's, go back, Samuel. And now when you hear God call your name, don't run into me. 
but say, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. That's the attitude that we are to have as we open the Bible. Speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. Dad, you've also talked about God's call for Israel to return to God. Sometimes we fall away from God. What are the steps to return to God? Well, the steps are really marked out well in Hosea, that very short verse, Hosea 14.1. O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. The first thing to see in that verse is the mercy of God. God addresses them by the title that he gave to Jacob. He calls them Israel. When they hear this term, O Israel, it should encourage them to return to God because this is God's name of mercy to the Jewish people. And God uses the same with us. He would turn to us and call us by our name. O Christian, O saved one, return unto the Lord thy God. It's like a begging. He's saying, you know, it hurts you. You think it hurts you to be away from God? It hurts God for you to be away from him. So he says, O Israel, and that we should read in that, God's begging to come back. Return. My heart is broken for you. Return now. Don't wait, but return to God who has never changed. Return unto the Lord thy God. We are talking about the Lord your God the God who saved us from our sins, the God that we walked away from. But this, our God, is full of mercies and full of the compassions to the state that we're in whenever we go away from him. And he has not changed. The Lord has not changed. The Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His mercies fail not. That is a very important refrain. That, that David said, his mercies fail not. Then he invites us to return. He invites us to come to him realizing if God, with all that the Jewish people have done against him, has not cast them off, which he said he is not in Romans eleven two, has God cast away his people whom he foreknew? God forbid, Paul protests. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. If he didn't cast them away, and he continues in a Hosea 14.1 to stretch out his arms all day long, as it says in Romans, and with this plea, O Israel, return unto the Lord thy God, then all the more we should hear him say to us, return. But one thing is necessary, and that is we have to own up. We have to fess up. We have to confess to him what has happened. And that, he says, is very simply, Israel must say, I have fallen by my iniquity. God says, you have fallen by thine iniquity. It's not God's fault that Israel has fallen away. It's Israel's fault, for thou hast fallen by thine iniquity. And the way back is to confess and to say those words, I have fallen by my iniquity. And the way back for any believer is to, first of all, come to the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, I'm separated from you because of my iniquity, because of my sins, what I have done wrong. But to realize that the Lord is quick to forgive. He's plenteous in mercy. 
He is of great compassion. Blessed be the Lord who forgiveth all our iniquities. That's God. When we confess, when we forsake, he forgives. And he says, I'm casting that into the depths of the sea. I'm putting that sin behind my back. I'm separating it as far as the east is from the west. Come now. And like the picture we have of the son of the prodigal father, the son running to the father, running to the son, throwing his arms around him, hugging him. The picture we have of Joseph, when Joseph's brethren were afraid to speak to him until Joseph kissed them on their necks and cried on them. And when they felt that kiss and the warmth of his tears, then it says, and Joseph's brethren spoke to him. And we realize that that's a picture of our God who wants with all of his heart for us to come back, come back to him. He wants to forgive. He wants to restore. He wants to reconcile. And as we are convinced of that and willing to humble ourselves, then that's the way back to the place from where we fell. Thank you for listening to Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. It's your listenership and support of the Friendship with God radio program and Israel Restoration Ministries that allows us to reach over 1.5 million Jewish people a year with the gospel every year, not just through this radio program and how you help us to reach out to Jewish people, but also through our Jewish evangelism outreaches with IRM missionaries that go door-to-door with the gospel in 18 different U.S. cities and also from South America to Israel to Canada, getting the gospel out to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, if you'd like to support the gospel going to a Jewish person that you know with a free gospel gift from Tom Cantor with his life story and DVD booklet, go to friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org to fill out the free online form or call us at 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051.